This is like the first interview that we're doing in person for Off The Script again in like two years. Yeah. <laughs> so this is pretty huge. I'm glad that you're here with And we're us. doing it combo, hybrid. Yeah, actually it's a hybrid interview. We've never done a hybrid. So Nevin, you're here for a couple firsts here. Let's go. <laughs> Happy to be a part of it. Got three people in Toronto, one person in Serbia across the world. Um, but we're making it work. And uh, I just want to introduce our guest. I should have asked you for a full introduction, Nevin, actually. Uh, but maybe it's best if you introduce yourself, actually. But I guess for some context today, we're talking about the business of pharmacy. Uh, Nevin comes from a company called Whole Health Pharmacy Partners, which some of our listeners might have heard about before. But um, Nevin has a wealth of experience, uh, specifically about maybe, uh, I want to specifically ask you about how good pharmacists are as business owners. Are they bad? Are they good? But we'll get into that. And then uh, how, about, how about you quickly introduce yourself and Evan, what your job is and uh, what you do? Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, thanks uh, for having me. Uh, happy to be here, especially to talk, you know, business side of things, um, you know, being around more clinical people in the profession, right? Um, so my name is Nevin Kulos. Been with uh, Whole Health Pharmacy Partners actually since day one. So that's about like five and a half years now. We've been, uh, we've been a company. And actually, to kind of back it up a little further, is right out of university, I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Christian Montini. And uh, you guys have met him, right? So um, quite the character he is. But, uh, you know, he um, is a partner and a co-founder of a company called DeNovo Medical. So DeNovo at the time, um, you know, they approached me and said, hey, we're looking for some sales reps in the field. You know, are you interested? I said, sure. You know, so did some you know odd jobs here and there for uh, for the company, and then what happened was, and you guys might know this, but there was uh, an acquisition in the industry where a retail banner group was purchased by one of the largest wholesalers in Canada. Right, so I don't want to name any names here, but right, so it was a massive acquisition, and what ended up happening was you saw this independent pharmacy group slowly morph into more of a corporate model. And it left a lot of people not exactly happy, right? So that created this opportunity for whole health to be created where we're giving you the support and the feel of you know, a head office retail banner group, but you're still remaining completely independent, right? So you know, if anyone knows the difference between a buying group and a banner group, we're kind of like the perfect hybrid in the middle where you got the autonomy, you can do as you please, but from the support side of it, we're there full service A to Z, right? So um, I do business development for Whole Health. So a large part of my job is knocking on doors. You know, people want to open a pharmacy. People want to convert their pharmacy or people just want to get educated on what we do and how we can help. That's what takes up 99% of my time. Faison and I have had the opportunity to literally be on field with Nevin to see what you do. But maybe you can describe like what you quickly do in a day, like nine to five, if that's even your hours. <laughs> yeah, from uh, if, if bosses are going to listen to this afterwards, for sure, nine to five is my working schedule. Um, you know, if we get calls from owners saying, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about opening up a pharmacy, right, in this certain trade area, whatever it may be, or they're trying to better understand, you know, the business side of pharmacy. Okay, I'll walk them through, you know, how the model works. How in Ontario, you know, things like commercial terms, what you need to do to get your pharmacy set up, things of that nature were turnkey in that respect. But, you know, the, um, the main focus, particularly for me, is to convert a pharmacy. So if you own a pharmacy today with company Y, I will, you know, knock on your door and basically educate you in understanding how whole health is, 
ultimately better, but different than what you're currently, you know, doing or who you're currently with. Sorry, just I have a question. When you say company wide, do you mean like if a, if a pharmacy is currently with another buying group or like what kind of pharmacies do you look to convert like part, ones that are parts of banners even or how does that look? Yeah, so it's a great question. So yes, buying group or banner, right? I mean, no one's really off limits when it comes to converting, right? Um, so from a buying group standpoint, it's much easier for us as a group to convert them because quite simply, it's mainly just a formulary uh, shift, right? You know, there's not really much branding from a competitor or, you know, maybe a little bit of private label OTC needs to be switched, you know, things of that nature. But from a banner side of it, sometimes you can find yourself with a pretty large daunting task on your hand, right? You got these massive signs and this and it's fully branded and it's definitely uh, operationally um, a little bit more difficult. But certainly we have, uh, you know, a great team at head office where we have the ability to convert really anyone over to our group. Cool, interesting. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. I mean, uh, just knocking on doors and getting the word out there, right? And uh, letting people know who we are, what we could do, and showing the positive, you know, difference between the groups. In those five years of the banners of of, of Hall's growth, um, how has your job evolved? Like now that there's more like industry recognition and it's becoming a no name and that kind of stuff. Like, how has that transition felt in your role? Yeah. So. Um, certainly it was when I first started, actually, when I first started with the group, I actually did more of uh, front shop management, right? So, uh, converting people, uh, we used to be with a wholesaler called McMahon distribution. So educating myself on optimization, merchandising, all that stuff. Right. Then I moved into more of a sales role. And for the early stages of that or early years, it was basically just learning, you know, anything that I could about the business side of pharmacy. Following right? Tim around. Following Tim around, right? And I'm sure as you guys all know, there's always government intervention happening and you think you know something, next day it's changing, yeah. right? Without going on a tangent, we had an announcement the other day about this proposed national pharmacare that's coming, right? So a lot of calls coming in saying sky's falling, sky's falling, right? Now that's years away. We'll, we'll obviously see what happens with that. But learning... You know, what a pharmacist needs is kind of the biggest task, right? So if I tell you, Alexa, hey, you know, maybe I can make you an extra $500 a month on, you know, a better formulary management. You might say, okay, that's great. But actually, I'm looking for more therapeutic, you know, um, assistance here, right? I'm looking to utilize some diabetes programs or maybe my home health care needs to be revamped, right? So you got to be a chameleon in that sense where... You're constantly evolving and finding the niche that an owner has and how you can aid in that development for them. But, you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years, which really attributed to our growth, I think within like 14 months, we doubled our store count, right? What happened was COVID-19. So, you know, owners that only really cared about, hey, is this, you know, generic OCT going to be an extra 5% here or 2% there, whatever it is, well... Now they were dealing with supply chain issues, right? Whether it was for pharmaceuticals, front shop, vaccinations, PPE, hand sanitizer. A lot of owners found themselves saying, I need support here, right? And that's where we really came in and we really thrived in showing owners that we can help you in every way. But, you know, for now, let's focus on getting your vaccinations, dealing with the ministry. If your wholesale order isn't coming, like we're picking up the phones, we're calling the stores. We were really, you know, grinding for our pharmacies, right? And within this industry, which I, I kind of learned, I won't say the hard way, but I learned very quickly was 
Pharmacy is big, but it's small in the sense where everyone knows everyone, right? And word of mouth is huge in this industry. So if I tell you, Chris, that, you know, I can do this for you, and you say, wow, that's great. And now you tell Faison, and then Faison tells Alexa. And the next thing you know, you got this, you know, lack of a better term, cesspool kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of developing where everyone is, you know, letting people know that, hey, this is what this group can do for me. Right. I think there are a lot of better terms you could have come up well, than cesspool. Uh, off, the, off the top of my head. <laughs> That's what I landed on, right? So it's, it's constantly developing and constantly changing. And you think you know something, but then something else happens. But end of the day, it's all about the network you have, right? And you got to constantly absorb the information. And like I said, identify what an owner is after. That can be the new uh, banner slogan. Whole Health Pharmacy Partners, join our cesspool. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually I was actually going to ask in the in the rapid growth during COVID nineteen, um, and without sort of revealing the secret sauce, what was it or what is it about the all those logistical management supports that your that the company offers that trumps let's say other banners, um, and I mean buying groups I think it's a little bit more obvious like they're pretty hands off generally but. Like, what's really like the competitive advantage, and how do you guys achieve that? And again, through the network, get it to sort of ripple through the community. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we have uh, on staff, obviously, our, our president and CEO is Dean Miller, who's a very well-known guy within um, pharmacy, not only in Ontario but you know, um, Canada, really, right? Heavily involved with the OPA and used to be you know chair. So. Within the ability of us to have these relationships with key members in the community, it allows us to kind of get this information, digest it quickly and get it out to our pharmacies, right? And, you know, kind of reverting back to what I just said, that there's always these things happening and changing where you got to kind of be on top of your stuff. So we always have that finger on the pulse within the market. But where we have a really strong advantage in comparison to other banners is we're small. Right. So within head office, we only have, I think, like we're at eight or nine employees. So you pick up the phone, you call someone, you can get to someone. And now we're managing 190 pharmacies, basically. So we have the ability where within our small network, okay, you pick up the phone phase on, you say, Nevin, I need this. Well, now I'm delegating this to that person, and we're constantly, you know, hands-on with our stores. And we have that small, nimble, mighty mentality where if you need something done, we pride ourselves on being able to execute efficiently. You don't got to go through these channels and this and then deal with one person and you wait two weeks to get a response. It's constantly being, you know, on the go. Interesting. So it's really like small team agility that how do you make that scale to like to the fact that you're growing with so many stores now? Like how do you how does a small team like at 100 or even 50 stores, that'd be very doable. But now as it's growing, what does that look like? <clears throat> That's a great question. Um, because at what point do you say, OK, we got to pull in someone else. Right. Or at what point do we have to diversify our portfolio a little bit now where maybe we hire a full time front shop person or a full time, you know, marketing specialist just to work on marketing. Right. We have Molly, who's a part of our head office. And she does programs and marketing, but at what point, like you said, do we scale, right? And do we expand? And I don't know if there's really um, like a key indicator that will tell you, okay, now is the time. I think if we found ourselves, you know, uh, underwater a lot and, and not being able to execute as efficiently as we are, maybe we would kind of now further look into certain resources that we could pull in. But right now things have been going great, right? And we've been able to get the job done. And um, I don't think that, you know, in the near future, there really is uh, any need to kind of expand a little bit. And just going back to when we talked about, you know, 
a lot of pharmacists were reaching out to you during the COVID pandemic and saying, you know, this is going on in my store. Oh my gosh, like the ministry, I have to deal with the ministry. All of these supply issues are happening. Uh, I just want to jump back to Chris's first question, which was, now more than ever, what are your thoughts on pharmacists as business owners? And I just want to get right into the meat of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, I think, I know, an issue that I hear is pharmacy back in the day was much different than what it is today, right? You had these owners that were well-established and they were quite successful in their business, right? And in turn, what happened is, you know, people like yourselves who work under some of these owners, you start to absorb the information that they feed you, right? And it's kind of a dated way of thinking, but within the market now, you have a lot of people who think they know business, but they don't. And they're pigeonholed in the sense of they're only focusing on getting an extra percent here or 2% there. But they're not doing anything to drive patients to their pharmacy. That's the issue that I'm seeing. Here's a perfect example in Toronto, right? You could walk to any intersection, you're gonna find eight pharmacies within a 500 meter radius, right? But what is each pharmacist or pharmacy doing different than the other one? You know, odds are that they're not really doing anything different, right? They're just hoping that patients are gonna show up there. Maybe they have a medical clinic that they're relying on the doctors to feed them scripts or, you know, um, telemedicine, obviously now because doctors aren't really in the clinics. But what we, what we try to do and try to let owners know is there is a better way to manage your business in the sense of pulling in these programs and these, you know, offers that can make you a niche within your community and a destination within your community. So as owners, pharmacists can be good owners if they have the proper education in terms of understanding what a good model is. And I think that's where we're finding the biggest gap is a lot of them don't have a good grasp on you know what a good uh, offering would be in the community. It's an interesting point that you raise that pharmacy owners seem to not know Maybe they don't detect, and I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Um, what are the blinders that you think pharmacy owners have that prevent them from seeing those alternative methods of becoming a destination in their community? Um, I think it greatly stems from the perception that working with a group like Whole Health or really a banner, any banner at that point, is a way to make less money, right? And there's this stigma in the industry where if I'm working with a banner, even Whole Health, well, they're going to take, you know, they're skimming off the top. You know, they got to keep their lights on. Why am I doing all this hard work just for them to make money off of me? I can go ahead and do it myself. It's not the case at all, right? And I mean, even like a group like ours, we don't have any banner fees, right? So we don't charge you anything. So the fact that people think that, well, they're just, like I said, they're taking from me and I got to do this and do that. That's the biggest issue. But it's a matter of understanding that it's just support that's coming, right? So that's the blinder. The blinder right there is, I need to do this myself, otherwise someone else, I'm working for someone else, lack of a better term. So the most right? they'll ever do is be part of a buying group. Correct, yeah, because a buying group, like you said, Alexa, they're very hands-off, right? But on the banner side of it, there's like a, reverting back to this stigma in the industry where it's corporate, right? And some of these owners who came from a Shoppers or a Rexall or a Loblaw, they don't want to go back to that life and they think that's what it's going to be. Interesting. Um, I have there's I have two follow up questions. I think the the first one would be, can you just to the listeners explain the different funding models or the different sort of revenue models that different banners have? Like you mentioned that Whole Health doesn't have a banner fee. So how do you guys keep your lights on versus another banner? Uh, 
hypothetically. <laughs> so within our formulary management, obviously there's, you know, generic companies want to reward us, right? By having their molecules listed within our formulary, right? So from the generic partners, there is a revenue stream that comes in through head office, okay? But we're a volume-based model in the sense of we're not taking 15, 20% off the top like some of these other groups do, right? It's much smaller in that sense. It's a much smaller margin. So we need, we need to grow to make some money, right? Now we're fortunate we're at the point that we are, we are in the black, but other groups with these banner fees, um, you know, their formulary management isn't as sophisticated. That's where they make their revenue and that's where they can afford to have, you know, 30 people within their, their head office or whatever it may be in terms of the different departments offerings to their stores, right? But for us, it's as simple as the more we grow, the more money we get from the generic companies. You know, maybe we run a brand program where Emirate, for example, just came out with this new EpiPen. So, you know, us working with these companies to help promote their products within our stores and educate the owners in a new emerging product, we get remunerated for that as well too. So it's about constant ongoing development of our programs that helps bring in revenue. And also us expanding our store base certainly would help us in terms of our formulary management and the revenue stream we have coming in from there. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I guess back to the first question I asked, like from a clinician's perspective or like as a, as a sort of non-clinician, like observing us in the wild, um, do you think that the clinical, like, again, I, I want to go back to the notion of blinders, like the idea that it's a corporate thing and that you're working for someone else is one thing, but also the inability to see the opportunities in the market, despite their clinical knowledge and their understanding of their patient base. What do you think is sort of hampering owners from seeing what's right in front of them? Like, why do you know the secret sauce, but they can't figure it out? Um, well, it's a good question. I think it's it's kind of reverting back to this. I don't know how to answer this. That's a that's a good question. <laughs> like, I I don't know about I can't speak on behalf of all pharmacists, but I feel like when we are going through our education, there's not a lot of opportunities for real productive collaboration. You know, like we are grown up in a society and education where we hate group projects. When's the last time you did a group project where you thought, man, I'm not doing all the work, right? Like, I think as pharmacists and just like healthcare professionals, we have like a little bit of a competitive mindset. And maybe that's like something that we kind of take into the workplace as well, where we think, you know, if I've been kind of burned before with group projects and thinking that people aren't going to help me much now, why is it that I'll try to seek opportunities to have other people help me later when I know how incompetent people are? That's not the truth. It's just like, a perspective that I, I can see people having and and even like without any experience like working directly under a banner I could imagine if I opened a pharmacy and I didn't know about whole health or pharmacy or any other banner I might think to myself man I don't I don't why would I join right I'd have the same well, I'm question. working for the man again yeah exactly I had the same questions because yeah it didn't seem productive to, to kind of like have our fees skimmed without knowing your business model again for that for that for, for no benefit. And I think the other part, like the education part, the fact that I think part of your job is to go out and educate. And again, speaking back to Chris on education, like through our education, not only is like group projects we end up hating, but at the same time, I think I can speak to that 
are like students who come out of pharmacy who become pharmacists and eventually pharmacy owners, they don't have direct experience or exposure to the business side of pharmacy and like the real on the grounds behind the closed doors side of pharmacy unless you are working at a head office or you get like a rotation at a head office. But it's not something actually like built into the curriculum. Like I think for us, we did, we were students at Whole Health and I remember being on the ground with Tim, one of the business development guys, and being able to see, okay, like, this is what people actually want to talk about. And it was like they were speaking a whole different language because it was like, I know the clinical side of things, but I was like, wow, there's this whole other world where I need to know about, like, my, like, margins that are being, so I need to know about staffing, labor costs, and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, shoot, like, opening a pharmacy isn't just, like, me having a prescription and filling it. There's so much more that goes on behind the scenes. Well, you know, it's, it's all good points. And, um, you know, one thing too that is very important is also the relationship that you build with these owners, right? And even someone who's, you know, a, a new grad, right? They're going to want to have trust and comfort in someone because this is a big deal. If you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars at opening up a pharmacy, you're going to want to make sure that the, the group you're going with is, is going to be reliable in every aspect, right? And helping you educate or helping you learn rather on the back end, but also helping you on the front end of things, dealing with the patient care, so on and so forth. But a blinder kind of reverting back to your question, Alexa, that, you know, is, is kind of dominant within the industry is loyalty too, right? A lot of people are loyal to their groups and same with us, same with PharmaSafe, same with PharmaChoice, right? Our owners, we we love them and they love us. I think for the most part, right? So, so, so for 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 me to now walk into your pharmacy, Alexa, and say I can do this better, you're gonna say, who, who the hell are you, right? I've never met you before, and now you know all about my business because in your mind, you have you know your business. No owner's gonna admit I don't know anything, right? They everyone thinks and believes they have a good grasp on things, and they may, but maybe there's something I can do to help you out, right? In this one avenue where you could say, you know what, Nevin. I'm good with my formulary management. I'm okay with procuring my own molecules. But uh, yeah, you know what? My front shop needs a little bit of revamping here. Okay, well then maybe we can collaborate on this, right? If I walk into your store and within three seconds, you're asking me, what's my financial remuneration coming from Whole Health? And okay, I'm ready to switch because you can offer me an extra 2%, whatever it may be. I don't like to hear that quite truthfully, right? Because that's that one part of the market where you got these, rate chasers, we call them. These okay. people that are just always looking for that next buck, right? Rather than developing a good sound model, they're just trying to get whatever they can to increase their margin a little bit here and there, right? That's not a sustainable model. And, you know, reverting back to this national pharmacare that potentially might happen, well, then now the rug's gonna be pulled right up from underneath your legs, right? Because if we go with only, you know, one molecule for amlodipine or one brand rather, well, then generic rebates, we're gonna see them plummet into the ground eroded again, so on and so forth. So I guess going back to the original question that we kind of posed, are pharmacists bad at business? It doesn't sound like, maybe just uh, before you kind of jump in, it sounds like maybe we sometimes are a little bit closed-minded and we don't see the entire picture. Like we aren't, we aren't taught business essentially, right? There's more to it than just the numbers. Like it's not as easy as just looking at the finance, the balance sheet and being, oh, we're in, we're in black, it's good, right? You have to build a whole model that's successful for future uh, endeavors in, in, in the business. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. It's that I don't think they're bad at business because there are so many different aspects to the business, right? I think in certain situations, there's just an education piece that needs to be 
communicated to these stores, but to say they're bad at business, I think would be would be wrong because, you know, if you're someone who's only doing, I don't know, 50, 60 scripts a day, but then your patient care is, you know, top of the line and you're doing all these things to help better the community, well then some can view that as a successful business, right? You might not be making $200,000 a year EBITDA, right? But if you have the ability to have a strong practice at, you know, at your home pharmacy, some could consider that good business, right? Right. And I'm I'm just thinking as well, like the, it seems like what, what your belief system in what is a successful pharmacy is like this holistic view. Like you gotta have like a strong foundation set up, kind of like, you know, an antithesis to those rate chasers where they're literally, I, I, the reason why I'm talking about this is I remember walking into a pharmacy when I was a student with Tim and it was like the front shop was like a total mess. Uh, it was just like an owner that he had been talking to. He was a full independent guy. He wasn't even with the banner group. He would deal with the reps himself. And Tim was just trying to talk to him about, it wasn't just about necessarily like his, his relationship with the rep and like the, the, the rebate side of stuff, but he was trying to tell him, you know, like helping him out with the front shop, talking about the entire picture. But all the guy had to say was like, I get a good rate with my guy. That's all he had to say. Like everything else that he was talking about, like professional development, the clinical support that's available and all that stuff, the, the whole model, all he cared about was like, I get a good rate with my guy and that's why I'm not going with you. And it was just like so interesting to see, like I was like this, like sure, you probably get a good rate and you probably have like some goodwill that's been built up over the years. But I was like, this is not peak performance. It's, it's really not like a well-optimized place. And I'm sure like if something were to happen in terms of like you selling off the store or whatever, I don't know where this pharmacy would end up going, right? Or if, if like a competitor opened up next door, I could see people starting to leave very fast just because you're the only person in this area and you just happen to have goodwill for over years, right? It's almost like they have like, like they have the assumption that just because what they have today means it's going to carry on to the future. No, that's, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, yeah, a good, a good business in my mind is a sustainable one, right? So if we have pan-Canadian drug uh, reform coming again, or it's up for renewal next year, I believe, 2023, I think in April, April, doesn't really matter. What's going to happen is the generic dollar, we can assume, is going to be eroded again, right? So now these guys who focus on the rates and, you know, thinking that this is like the main uh, pillar for their business, well, if your generic dollar is going down and now your rebates is also going to be affected respectfully or companies start pulling out a certain molecules because they're saying, uh, you know what, like, why am I going to make an lodipine, for example? So maybe that becomes a dual source drug now or maybe dual source becomes single source. So your rebate is just plummeting to the ground, right? If that's all you're focused on, you're in a, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Because if you have no other revenue drivers or, you know, patient drivers, within your business, you're going to find yourself in a very difficult spot because all you got is this generic dollar that you're focusing on. And if it goes away, well then tough luck, right? So I want to, I want to actually expand on that because I know Alexa and I are very passionate and Alexa, maybe this is the point that you're going to be talking about, but we're very passionate about the fact that pharmacy as a whole right now in the market is okay. Okay. Do you want to go or do you want, it's up to you, man. I, I just have a fundamental question just for the listeners who may not fully understand the business side. Like, can Nevin, can you please give us just a quick rundown of the rebate currently, like the rebate system currently, and also the impact that a national pharmacare, like when you say rebates hit the ground, 
um, like when they tank and it'll be eroded. Like folks who understand the system grasp it, but for folks who are brand new, like new listeners, students and so on who haven't been exposed to this, can you just kind of give us a quick rundown of how all that works? Yeah, so obviously since we're in Ontario, I'll call it a commercial term, right? Let's avoid avoiding gray area here. So within the market, we have a company uh, like Apotex, okay? So Apotex develops a drug and the way it works is Apotex now is gonna deal with either its retail reps or within head office arrangements like Whole Health and saying that within your formulary, I would like to be your dedicated primary for amlodipine. So what happens is because we have them listed within our formulary, we get remuneration on that, right? So it's a promotion of their own product. What is going to potentially happen with National Pharmacare is because Apotex, Sandoz, and Rambaxi, and I don't know, um, Teva. Teva, yeah, Teva, make amlodipine, you know, you got five people within the market making this one drug, and they're all competing amongst each other to say, well, whole health, I want, I want you to do my drug, or, or you know, pharmacy, if I want you to do mine, whatever it may be. National Pharmacare, what it essentially is going to do is the government is going to go to each one of those manufacturers and say, what is the cheapest price you can give me on this molecule, right? So if Apotex says 10 cents, Teva says nine, so on and so forth, they're going to pick the lowest one. And then what's going to happen is, okay, if you want coverage, you know, people on this one molecule, you have to use this one company that we selected. So they're going to tender out molecules. It's actually, I think that actually currently happens in Quebec. So... Once they tender it out, well, now what's going to happen, Alexa, is Apotex is going to pull out. Um, Sandoz is no longer going to make the molecule. Because why? No one's buying this molecule anymore. Why am I going to waste my money and my resources on developing this molecule? So now what's going to happen? Teva, since they're mainly the only one producing this molecule, they're not going to give anything to the stores. Why would I give you a rebate? I mean, you have to use my molecule. They have the monopoly in the market. They have a monopoly in the market, right? That's not to say that there's going to be you know, only Teva making that, there might still be some other guys, uh, you know, cash paying customers or, you know, drugs will still be made by other companies, but large in part, there's going to be monopolies on a lot of these molecules in order to get coverage within the community. Right. Okay, cool. So just kind of for, for folks listening, it's essentially now commercial terms are a way for manufacturers to market and essentially they compete not through the quality of their products because it's essentially all the same molecule they compete with uh, amongst themselves to be carried by stores through favorable commercial terms if we get a national pharmacare plan one of them will get a monopoly reducing the necessity for this competition via commercial terms tanking pharmacy revenue essentially correct yeah so right now it's basically a free market where, and that's where you kind of see these uh, commercial terms go up and down because if in the market we have five people working towards gaining market share within this one molecule, well now they're going to be trying to outcompete each other, right? So, okay, if you're getting 60% here, well, you know what? I'll give you 65, right? And that's where you see that competition, which is healthy, right? I mean, it, it creates a nice free market. But if that gets taken away by this national pharmacare saying, uh-uh, only one player per molecule, then there's no need for that anymore, right? And it's, it's. Uh, I got phone calls left, right, and center when this thing was announced saying, what's going to happen? And quite truthfully, I don't know what's going to happen, right? I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen. Um, I believe this model was done in New Zealand and it failed miserably. So that's... Failed on what side though? From the patient care standpoint, to my understanding. 
um, massive drug shortages because you only really had one person oh. making the molecule. Yeah. Right. You don't have any backup molecules anymore, right? No. If the, if the factory gets shut down by Health Canada, then it's like no more amlodipine for you for the next three months. Correct. Shortages galore. This right. is why we need capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> the free market. It's um, the, going back to what I was originally saying. Alexa and I talk about this frequently about how the current model of revenue in pharmacy is a drug reimbursement-based model. You can talk about professional services all you want, but the way that the funding works at the moment, and we call it like a broken system because ultimately when you look at drugs as being the, the prime revenue source and the government is always looking at how can we make drugs cheaper for everyone because no one wants to pay for healthcare, which is fine, I understand it's a, it's a quasi-socialist country, um, then you're always going to have a decreasing trend line in what the revenue is going to be from the drug reimbursement side. However, what hasn't happened is on the professional services side, the clinical services side, it hasn't been matched in the increase. So even though Nevin, like you're like you guys are talking about your volume-based model, more stores, better for everyone all around. Do you still see this looming threat? Like even besides PharmaCare, PharmaCare comes or it doesn't come. We already had, back when I was a student with you guys, they had just decreased the price of a lot of multi-source drug molecules from like 20% to 18%, 15% to 12%. I remember being on the calls with the owners being like, do you know this is happening? And they're like, what are, what are you even talking about, right? But do you see this further continuing? Because the states have it really bad from what I understand. And I guess to add on to that question, is are you seeing banners like Whole Health or anyone else try to do things to kind of you know, to, 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 to pad their revenue additionally other than just the drug reimbursement side of stuff? Well, there's a couple things. So one is if the generic dollar gets eroded again, um, yes, certainly, I mean, that revenue stream now from a pharmacy side is going to go down, right? So unfortunately, that's a tangible thing that's a threat, right? An intangible thing is focusing more on the patient care and helping drive more scripts into your pharmacy, right? So that's where I think you're going to see a large focus in the sense of, okay, you know, maybe for me to break even in today's market, it's 70 scripts a day. But now if the generic dollar goes down, well, now I got to get 80 scripts, right? I got to compensate for that. So where am I going to compensate it? Maybe I focus on front shop sales, home healthcare, right? So there's other ways to make up for that loss. And it's important to remember too that, you know, a rate like 70%, whatever it may be on a, on a molecule, I mean, the, the bottle might only cost $5, right. right? So, I mean, what are we talking about here? It's not a lot of money, right? But people, the optics, right? If the generic dollar is going down, if my rebate is going down by 10, 15%, it's like, what am I going to do, right? But there are other ways to compensate for this. But it's important to note too that it could also create some opportunities in the sense of now you take a further step back and identify, okay, you know what? maybe this isn't the model I need within my pharmacy, right? Maybe I can take a step back now and identify some other key driving revenue factors that could help diversify the portfolio and not rely solely on 5% here, 10% there. Do you think Do you think with COVID and all the additional professional services, it kind of has like allowed people to have like this like veil draped over their over their face with regards to how drug reimbursement is going because kind of had this like temporary prop up, right? Everyone's making huge amounts of money these days. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate because there are a lot of owners um, that, I, that I come across where they relied very heavily on the vaccinations, right? And getting that kind of um, 
you know, remuneration and, and revenue from the government. And now that's kind of taken away. Obviously, we saw a massive decline in vaccinations. Um, flu season, obviously, coming up at the end of this year. You know, that's going to be hopefully another little prop up, as you mentioned. But yeah, certainly, I mean, a lot of them now kind of are left scratching their heads saying, what do I do next? Right. And that's where we really try to come in and say there are things you can do. Right. Whether it's focusing on a diabetes program or, you know, um, asthma, right, for example, right, anything that could help in the therapy side of things to, to get people to, to come into the pharmacy is what we're really trying to do. I would, uh, sorry, I would also, though, go back to you and say, like, again, because I know Alexa and I talk about this all the time. Um, you're going, you're saying 70 scripts is the breaking point. You know, drug reimbursement goes down, 90 scripts is the new breaking point. Mm -hmm. But again, we're just talking about a model where the number of script counts that are required gets bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. But at some point, unless unless you're going out and making people sick, you're not going to get any more prescriptions coming through the door, right? Like you could, like I'm just thinking, and I'm, I'm not trying to be like a, like a pessimist or anything, no. but just like a realist, you can make the patient experience amazing. You could have like on-staff waiters that are like ready to cater and, and serve coffee at your pharmacy, mm -hmm. but there's only a certain limit. Like there's a limit threshold that you would be able to approach and eventually you're just going to get squeezed out of the water, right? Like you're not going to be able to be viable at some point once the generic dollar is eroded completely. Oh, no, absolutely, right? I think there's going to be a cleansing, right, to say the least, which okay. is which is unfortunate. And that's that's kind of doom and gloom right there, okay. right? But I'll be the first to say it, where there are, there are so many, there's too many pharmacies out there, right? People might not want to hear this, but there are too many pharmacies. I could go to an intersection in Mississauga and throw a tennis ball and hit 15 before the ball hits the ground. Right and that's a good arm. <laughs> well, well, it's like I said too prior, right? We know when the generic dollar was great, it was hardy, right? People were making great money, right? And it was a nice business to own. But now that the revenue is going down in terms of the drug reimbursement, people are going to shut their doors, right? And it's it's unfortunate, it sucks, but in the end, I think it's actually good in a way, right? Because now it allows those who do make the patient care better, they're going to be the ones that are going to survive this. And, and I was actually going to ask about that, like how saturated is the market? How artificially inflated is the market through very favorable historical commercial terms? And what do you foresee happening? And I think it's really interesting that you got to that point as well, that there's going to be a cleansing. But I have another question, which is also in the context of like the entities that lean into that race to the bottom with reducing, with decreasing revenue, so increasing volume, like Costco, Central Phil Pharmacies, the looming threat of Amazon Pharmacy and all those kinds of things. Like, how can you see um, those stores and the pharmacists that want to maintain good patient care competing in an environment that seems to be increasingly volume-based? And that consolidation will ine inevitably happen. Um, it's a, you know, it's a great question. And I don't think I really have the answer because, you know, as you mentioned, Amazon pharmacy and online, you know, central fills, basically, Hey, I submit my prescription. I get my drug the next day. Right. Within our age group, I think that's desirable amongst us. Right. I don't have to leave my house. Right. I order it lazy. Right. <laughs> that's what it, that's what it is. Right. It's lazy. And especially now what we saw, Alexa, with, uh, you know, clinics being shut down over COVID-19 telemedicine. So now I can even see a doctor from my, from my living room, right? 
That being said, I think in terms of the physical in-person meetings with owners and, you know, discussing with your pharmacist, okay, you know, doing a meds check or, you know, that personal touch, uh, that there's still definitely a market for that. And people do appreciate that. There's still senior citizens out there who, and my grandmother for sure as hell, she wouldn't be ordering anything off of Amazon. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> but that won't go away. I think it's going to what you're going to find is that people are going to want to figure out, okay, how do I kind of keep people in my store? Which I think is the big unknown where unfortunately I don't really have the answer now for you, but definitely listen for independent pharmacy. I think you're going to see people band together and try and stop in Amazon, like, you know, coming here and essentially destroying independent pharmacy if all goes according to their plan. So what we're going to find is we're going to have to identify in the market now, okay, how do we keep people in our stores? Right. Is a front shop program enough? Is home healthcare program enough? Is me running a brand diabetes program enough? You know, meds check, whatever it may be. That's what the big unknown is. So we'll just have to wait and see, really. Interesting. No, those are really, really good thoughts. But so just if I can like simplify it and and archetypize it, I guess, like in the future, we're going to have to work extra hard to not chase the bottom line, but to chase people and keep them in the store and make them understand the value that we can provide in that human touch so that we don't lose them to the ease and convenience and the, as you put it, the laziness that comes with the Amazon pharmacy and then just the easy digital everything at your doorstep kind of thing. Absolutely. Yep. Not to take this into a, a separate thing here, but one thing we're trying to do at Whole Health is we have the ability now through our funding partner to open up recreational cannabis stores. So that's one thing we've been, you know, kind of focusing on because what happened two years ago, whenever it was legalized within Canada, um, medical cannabis kind of fell a little flat, right? And the reason being is, you know, from a patient care standpoint, I think it's still great in the market, right? We have um, a gentleman by the name of Raheem Dalla who owns Hybrid Pharmacy with us, and he's doing an amazing job in the medical space, is very well known within the industry. But, you know, for the chain of custody, right, in terms of the product getting to the patient, there's a lot of steps, right? And from an owner standpoint, you might refer someone to get, uh, you know, the prescription, the LP, this and that, you might get like 10 bucks off that, right? It's not a lot. So what we did was we focused on the recreational side of it and saying that it's the same product. But you know, if a patient wants to come in and, you know, walk next door and then pick up a CBD or a THC product to help supplement their Zolpiclone or their pain medication, well, then they can just walk next door and purchase it, right? Or also within the community now, anyone can just walk into this store and purchase a CBD or a THC product. So through Insulata the Cannabis Market, we're bringing this opportunity to owners to diversify your portfolio and now become a destination where, Okay, Mrs. Smith, right, you know, 60-year-old lady who has insomnia, trouble sleeping, why don't we help supplement your script, not take it away, supplement it with a CBD or a THC product, and also you're a part owner in that recreational cannabis store too, right? So something to, to, to bring to our stores and say that, okay, maybe your dollar is going down on this side, let's make it go up on the other side of things. It's interesting you mentioned the cannabis side of stuff because I think the, I feel like the legalization of cannabis, like however many years ago it was now, was like supposed to be like this big turning point. Mm. But I felt like no one really actually truly capitalized off of it. 
And then like now we're just kind of like left picking up the pieces and now you have like cannabis stores on like every single corner. I, I, I honestly, I feel like you see as many cannabis stores out there now as pharmacies. And it's like, I don't know how they stay viable. Do they actually have that many customers? I don't understand. Well, it, last time I checked, I think there's like 1,200 cannabis stores in Ontario, right? So there's there's crazy They can't amounts. be profitable. They can't all I, be profitable. Not all of them. No, not all of them. I, I, I'd be very skeptical on that, right? And it's a race to the bottom. You see, it's no different in pharmacy. And I don't know what you guys think about this, but, you know, owners waving the $2 copay, right? Right. right. Some might say that's awful for the industry. You know what I mean? You're, you're kind of short selling yourself here a little bit. And that's also revenue stream that you're just nixing yeah, right yeah. there, right? So people are very opinionated on that, but it's competition within the market across the street saying, well, I'm lower than this person, right? Seniors don't pay this, right? So it's a race to the bottom and getting people in, but now you're diluting your model where it's, it's only a matter of time before you're left with a margin that's like 5% that you're getting on a script, right? Cannabis is no different. People are trying to compete with the lowest prices. Okay, go ahead and do that, right? End of the day, if you're making a dollar off of every person you see versus a store is making $10, right? Because of the services they're bringing, you know, it's like the difference between going to a home hardware or a Home Depot, right? Home hardware, getting that personal touch. Maybe you're paying a little bit more, but you know the experience that you're getting is, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze, if you will. It's interesting you mentioned that because it's like, again, pharmacy it's like you're gonna get the yeah. same drug anywhere mm. and then that's exactly what i thought about cannabis stores i was like because like i saw so many of them and i was like they all have different signs they all have different marketing but i was like i'm pretty sure they carry the same products so the only thing that's different is the price but then it's like why are they putting so much work into this branding and all this marketing and sort of stuff when all, at the at the end of the day I'll just be getting the exact same thing. I don't understand like how they're staying in business. I don't get but, it. But, but that's the exact thing, right? That's the only thing keeping them different, perhaps, is the branding, is the branding and, and, and the branding. personal touch they bring. So like, there's a unique synergy that you guys are doing with Insulata where if you are providing that extra service and supplementing someone's already, like someone's medical condition, that literally provides them an additional revenue stream for the cannabis itself, right? Right. It's like interesting in how synergistic it can be. And then for some reason, no one's done it yet <laughs> until until now. But um, but I think Alexa had something. Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to ask. So like if we're noticing a trend across, you know, prescription drugs and now cannabis, like as a sort of heuristic, is it reasonable to say that essentially if there's no distinction in quality of the product and if it's more or less the same regardless of the end vendor, pharmacy, cannabis store, whatever, price is going to be the determining factor and it will inevitably become a race to the bottom. Like I'm kind of thinking about cars. Like people will pay more for like a Mercedes or like a BMW versus like a Toyota. So like there with that car, there's like the branding and the marketing and all that kind of stuff that brings it along. So can we think of ways that pharmacy can start tiering itself such that you have like the less luxurious but the more affordable side of it versus those ones that have better services and all that other kind of stuff that people are willing to pay more for, such as like a Mercedes or something like that? Is, this, is that even the right line of questioning, actually? Because I think that might be a false start i think like I'm, I'm not i'm not confident in the question itself but i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that no it's it's an interesting point because you know in, in both pharmacy and you know cannabis well let's focus on pharmacy here right you can walk into a store that's a dump right and you might sit there now and say 
I don't even want to get my script filled here, right? It's like, you know, it's like you, you brought up the Mercedes, the Mercedes uh, kind of, you know, point there. It's, it's very true. Some stores you walk into, yeah, okay, the dispensing fee might be $12, but look at the service I'm getting. I feel good being in here, right? The, pay, uh, the owner's attentive. They know me when I walk in the door. I can pick up my product here. I'm good to go. It's an, it's an experience, right? Some other stores that are just trying to, you know, go after the lowest price possible, where maybe the dispensing fee is $7. Right, so I'm saving money as an end consumer here, but I don't really, I don't get any experience. Right, it's it's a it's a you know just a dispensary. Right, so it really it opens up an opportunity for people, or if they want to get that luxurious Mercedes experience, well then you know we can help provide that. And there are owners that want to offer that to their to their patients. They're not, they're not going to be the cheapest in the area, but people want to go where they get the attention and they want to feel good going to the pharmacy. You don't want to walk in there. You know, you, you're stepping on stuff and, you know, the shelves are half full. It's not a good experience for anyone involved at that point in time. I would say the person that stands out to me right away as someone who's able to provide that in, like, the pharmacy that I think about is, like, Kairolos. The, the, I think he's, like, pharmacy. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, he's all over the, he's all over the news. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, sorry, is it Kiro? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, he's like, social media is like popping. His like pharmacy yeah. has like all the chalk like drawings and everything. Mm -hmm. Like I would think that if I walked into yeah. a store, I would get a good experience. And it would be like, okay, if I had to go to a pharmacy and if I was in the area, I would probably pick him right away. Because I know that like the experience I would get is good. But that's, it's an interesting point, Alexa, because again, it's always we're talking about like this race to the bottom. But why, like, I don't know, Nevin, you tell me, is it again like the blinders are kind of on or like why aren't people kind of going after the model where, you know what, my dispensing fee is actually going to be 20 bucks, mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to waive copay. You can be mad at me all you want, but you know what, you're going to get the best damn experience that you're going to ever have at this pharmacy. Like where's that line of thinking? Uh, this, is, this is kind of a, a very elementary answer here, but it really boils down to being lazy. Right? There's work involved. You got to roll up your sleeves. You got to identify, okay, what do I need to do different? How can I change things for the better here? Unfortunately, if you are someone who has been doing something for 15 years, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And that's what's refreshing for me and probably for you guys too is being younger in this industry, you're seeing the model change. You know, you brought up this gym beside, beside your pharmacy. Do you think an owner who's 60 years old has ever thought about doing that? Probably not, right? So now with this younger emerging community with an ownership potentially coming to the market here, it's going to allow us to adapt and change things and identify something that hasn't been done before and put the put in the hard work to get this up and rolling, right? Reverting it back to my earlier statement. If you're, you know, opening up a pharmacy, it's going to cost you half a million dollars. You're going to want this to be successful, right? And it's not going to be a hundred scripts a day right off the bat, but what are you doing to make yourself a destination? right? And if you don't know, call us, right? Call Whole Health or speak to your friends, speak to ways to, di you know, diversify yourself within the community so that you're not just another pharmacy across from another one. I'm getting so many ideas for marketing now. I want to stop you from ruining your future plans of becoming <laughs> a millionaire on really, really good pharmacies. <laughs> I'm doing you a favor if I was on. <laughs> um, no, but I have a question uh, regarding or rather a thought that just popped in my head. Um, is it possible because, you know, Toronto, very multicultural people from all sorts of backgrounds. And I think, and I'm just coming at it from like a different lens, you know, being outside of Canada, having spent a bit of time outside of Canada now and sort of seeing what the rest of the world may also look like. 
is it possible that that focus on cheap service might be driven by a fear that people put money first and like think about like thinking of other sort of cultural backgrounds like not all the the whole world doesn't have the luxuries that Canada does where you can look at quality, you can look at experience. Like I'm just thinking about people in Serbia, like the notion of experience is such a far fetched concept where it's like, no, what's the, like, I literally don't have a budget this month. It's like, what is the most inexpensive service or product that I can get? So it's not to say that if a pharmacy can't build it in, that's a benefit for sure, but it's still like, is it possible that we're just working with such a mosaic of cultures that, predominantly come from hard times and hard places so that that's a sort of business driver in most owners' minds. Absolutely. I mean, and I don't want to sound naive or ignorant when I say that, you know, it's a race to the bottom because in certain areas, as you just mentioned, that is, that's what the market trend is, right? I mean, I can't pull up a pharmacy in the middle of Toronto now and have a $20 dispensing fee. No one's going to want to come to my pharmacy, right? Yeah, if everyone, yeah, dead in the water. If everyone else is $4 around me, it's like, why would I pay extra 16 bucks? I don't care if Nevin gives me a chocolate or a coffee every time I walk in. Nevin gives me a back scratch. Yeah, you know? So, no, that's that's a very good point, but it, you got to identify, I guess. You got to do the market analysis with in and around your pharmacy. Okay, never go in blind into an area. Identify what pharmacies are around you, right? And that's where we definitely come into play, you know, in terms of helping you understand that, hey, you know what? I know this owner. He's been here for a while. It's a very busy pharmacy. People love him, right? Might be tough to compete against him. So what are you going to do differently? Nothing. I wouldn't open up here, right? But, you know, identifying that, okay, if this is, uh, you know, an area where there is lower income and it's heavily ODB, right? Well, then, of course, you got to work that into your pro forma and you got to make sure that your business plan is going to reflect that of the community in which you're in, right? So there's, and this is... There's so many different things that get layered into opening up a pharmacy and helping understand if this is a good area, which, you know, again, it, it, it boils down to what group are you working with and how they're going to help you set up for success. Right. So, so again, like it, it's location because location drives demographics. And if you have those two pieces of information, like what, what part, I guess, of the original Intel, like, you know, knowing your enemy is half the battle. Um, so it's like, how much of that would you say, like what percentage of making the right choice would you say is comprised in knowing the location, the surrounding competition and the demographics and who you're going to be serving essentially? I would say that's like 80% of the battle right there. Right. And it's, it's unfortunate. And you know what? It's borderline frustrating too. Sometimes when we want to help out as much as possible, but if a pharmacy or a pharmacist is going with a group, it's usually the last thought, right? So they'll find a location, they'll sign a lease, they'll build it out, then they'll say, okay, who am I gonna go with, right? So they'll call me up and say, hey, Nevin, open up a pharmacy here. And they can sign a lease, be like, yeah. And I'll look it up. And there's like four different pharmacies right by this person. And I say, well, why? And I ask, like, well, why did you open up here? Oh, I don't know. Or why didn't you call me first? Well, exactly, right? And it's like, well, I, it was a space for lease, right? Oh, and I'm paying $120,000 a year to lease this place out. <gasps> Right. And it's like, man, you know, it's, you feel, you almost feel bad, right? Because you want to help out as much as you can. And they don't really have much to differentiate themselves within the industry. So we'll try and get some doctors in there. Maybe you start doing compounding, right? Maybe you focus on home health care, anything to kind of give you a little bit of an upper edge there. But it definitely matters, you know, in terms of where you're opening, how many people live within the area. Is there a new subdivision being built? All things of that nature can certainly 
become a factor. I think we've talked a lot about like the external factors, like things that sometimes are out of your control or like market factors that we can involve and, and try to influence to kind of improve the pharmacy experience. But I think a, a lot of times when people hear, you know, how can we make a better pharmacy? How can we be a better pharmacist? How can we be a better owner? They, they care about themselves. Like how much of a difference can an individual pharmacist owner make? Like, like how do you know when you're talking to someone that they are someone that you'd want to have with your banner, for example? Like how can you tell that they got, this, they got the chops to, to open a pharmacy? and be successful? No, great question. Um, so first and foremost, it's, and I wanna say this respectfully, when it comes to opening up a pharmacy, oftentimes when you deal with uh, a, a first time owner, they don't know a whole lot about the business side of it. Hence, we're having this conversation, right? So there's a great education piece that's involved in that and they wanna learn, they wanna absorb the information and it's good, they're motivated, right? Because again, you, it's your business, you wanna make sure it's successful. But when you're dealing with a converting owner, you can tell very quickly whether or not they're, they got the chops, as you said. Faison brought up a, a fantastic you know, um, example when he was out with Tim and the one guy was so pigeonholed and blinded and only focusing on this one thing, right? You gotta know when to walk away, right? That's not the owner we want. We want someone that's well-rounded. We want someone that's gonna wanna better the community, not only focus on what rate are you giving me for this one molecule. That's not us, right? That might work for someone else, might work for your current group, that's totally fine, but we at Whole Health wanna diversify our portfolio and make sure we focus on patient care. Patients are always first with us, right? Financials is certainly important, but we wanna make sure that the patient care is there and you can easily tell just within a conversation if someone cares about their patients or not. Uh, yeah, no, like just in talking about, like essentially market research is trying to read the landscape. And it's almost like trying to read a story that is sort of unfolding before you. Um, and what's interesting to me is that we talked about this in previous episodes where like pharmacists are bad storytellers. What's interesting is that we're also, we also seem to be like bad listeners almost and not listeners in like hearing our patients needs that I think we're actually really good at, but listening to a broader narrative, whether it's what's the state of the financial like situation in pharmacy? Like what's the government doing? Like being aware of those things. It seems like we're really bad at picking up very important clues and piecing together a meaningful story that we can then act on and, you know, make good business decisions and stuff like that. So it's just interesting to me that as much as we fail on telling a story, we seem very bad at piecing one together that seems to be unfolding in front of our eyes. Well, I mean, no one wants to face the fact of, uh, I shouldn't say face the fact, but it's kind of tough to look at the glass half full a lot of the times uh, and, you know, absorb this information and, and think of it almost as a positive way to improve in certain areas when it seems like the world is crumbling around you sometimes, right? With, you know, the government intervention here or maybe during COVID-19, you saw a massive decline in your script count, whatever it may be, right? That's tough. And... You know, especially too, if I walk into your pharmacy and I'm trying to tell you how to better yourself, you might say, dude, like you don't know anything about my business, right? And I don't for the most part, right? But I understand what works and what doesn't. I think I have a good handle on that. And if you're open to listening and absorbing this information yourself as an owner, that's the best thing you can do is just listen, you know, educate yourself, try and learn as much as you can. It doesn't mean you have to join our group or join any group for that matter. But for someone who knocks on a door, you know, 20 times a day in different cities all across Ontario, I mean, you would think I would have some interesting things that you could learn from. 
right? And if you're willing to listen, okay, let's develop a relationship. Let's chat about it, right? And kind of go from there. If you're not, that's fine too. There's always going to be those owners who don't want to listen to anyone. They know what they're doing. I'm right. You're wrong. Totally fine. They're going to be part of the cleansing. See you in, yeah. See you in two years when you're now a relief pharmacist versus an owner, right? It's kind of harsh to say, but it's true. And and maybe this is also just how we're socialized, but going back to the point that was made earlier about us being competitive, like even admitting that you're wrong or admitting that you don't know everything, it takes a degree of like, you know, maturity. And so the ability to say like, I don't know something from a business perspective requires a degree of humbling from the pharmacist or the owner. And it's like, also now this might be, this might be like really I mean bad if it's true but like a pharmacist is like oh like a non-clinician is here to tell me how to run my business like please like do you feel maybe actually yeah do you feel like there is a bit of a gap with some pharmacists who like let the their degree get to their head when they you know when they're speaking to a non-clinician absolutely or even a salesperson like is there stigma sorry yeah you know absolutely right and I've I I can't think of an example off the top of my head but I know for sure there has been times where I'll kind of put my pharmacy hat on and, and try and focus more on the therapeutic side of things. Or maybe there's a government change coming down the pipeline and they kind of look at me with this stink eye and saying like, you're not a pharmacist. And they'll actually ask me, are you a pharmacist? And I'll say, no, I'm not. Right. And then you could just tell right away. They're like, okay, you know, get out of here <laughs> kind of thing. And listen, pharmacists are very opinionated for the most part. Right. And I, I think a lot of them feel that, they know everything and this isn't a shot at anyone, but they, you know, they went to school, they, they learned what they needed to learn. They understand the market better than anyone. And you're a non-pharmacist and you're going to come here and tell me what to do. And I get it. Right. I mean, I kind of would do the same thing if I'm being honest with you, but if you're not willing to listen to what I have to say, there's no harm in just hearing what, you know, what's happening out there. Right. Because again, you might be so focused on your business. You don't really know what else is happening around you. Right. And that's where I think there's a great opportunity for you to learn and you know help identify. Maybe I want to open up a second pharmacy, a third pharmacy, whatever it may be. Right. Because you got to expand. You got to be constantly expanding not only your business, but your mind, too, in terms of understanding what's happening. Yeah. And I mean, I know that like owners like the the demographics for owners tends to be like older. But like, I mean, as we're sort of also getting older, like three plus years out of school already. So it's like, are you noticing that the younger owners tend to be more open to hear new things? Or is it actually sort of across generations? It's just more of a personal thing. No, definitely the younger generation for sure, I think is is open to learning, right? And you kind of have a blank canvas too, right out of school, right? Which is nice. It's refreshing, but you got to be careful too, because I might suggest something to you or Tim might suggest something to you or Dean or whoever within our company might suggest something to you doesn't necessarily mean it's always right, you know? So you can't take what I say as the holy grail in, in understanding that this is what it takes to run a successful pharmacy. Everyone is different. Every pharmacy is different, right? But the younger demographic and the younger owner base, it's exciting. It's exciting for me to have these refreshing conversations where people are willing to expand their scope and, and look at different ways that they can do some different things and it's exciting. It's exciting, right? Because um, you're going to see a nice shift and it keeps things interesting, right? It's new models that are being developed. It's new ways we can tailor our business. And if you're not doing that, if you're not always looking at a way to do something new, you get stagnant, right? And you get flat and it's stale, right? So I think, you know, this fresh, exciting, new, 
new owner base coming out is uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. Does Whole Health have a sort of, or are you looking at developing a kind of, poaching is a negative term, but I'll just go with it, like a sort of way to identify engaged entrepreneur, potential owner pharmacists and like engage them early so that they call you before they buy the location that's actually crap. And like you can actually like facilitate like kind of almost like an incubator for innovative potential pharmacy models. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, through our business development team, large in part, you know, within our daily conversations, we make these relationships and we can identify that, okay, this owner, I know right now he has five pharmacies. Right. And I know he's in acquisition or expansion mode. So you obviously keep that that reserve of contacts where you know that, okay, this is the guy. And I'm not gonna name any names, but within the industry, there are these, you know, influential people within ownership side. You know, they got seven, eight, ten pharmacies, some of these, some of these people, right? And they're pillars within the ownership community. Um, so you keep those certainly, you know, at arm's length, and then hopefully that develops into something. From a new ownership standpoint, it's a little difficult because what we see a lot is, number one, new grads rarely are buying a pharmacy or opening a pharmacy within the first couple of years, right? And I think that's smart because you got to cut your teeth. You got to learn where you can, you know, hopefully you can get into an independent pharmacy where you have a mentor that could help you out in terms of, you know, being a clinician, but also helping you maybe understand the business side a little bit in a practical sense. But, you know, what we see large in part is owners from, or associates from like Shoppers or Rexall, they're the ones that say, I'm done with this pharmacy, I need to open up my own. I wanna leave corporate, I wanna go to independent. It's tough to understand though when that shift is happening. We might get a call here and there, but can't walk into a Shoppers and say, hey, you wanna open up your own pharmacy, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not gonna exactly go over well. You know, we can't fax them because that just gets into a, a whole mess, right? But it's, it's all just word of mouth, Alexa. And, you know, kind of what I said earlier is that pharmacy is big and small at the same time. So that referral, that network that you develop, people talk, people chat. The more of a name you make for yourself, the more you try to push the envelope, that gets you some attention. And it gets you that spotlight on you, which we've been fortunate enough to have on us for quite some time now, being one of the fastest growing groups here in Canada. So as long as you keep having those conversations, keep trying to promote the new innovative things you're trying to do, that's how we kind of incubate, if you will with these new potential owners. Gotcha. So, right. So essentially like young thought leaders kind of like, like attracts like almost. Yeah. And sense. I mean, we'll, we'll get a, we'll certainly get a, we're not for everyone, right? I'll be the first to admit that, but we'll get, we'll get a phone call at least saying, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about opening up a whole health. What can you do for me? Right now, this is where there's an issue because you get still these owners that are focusing on the immediate now. They're not thinking of the future. They're not thinking of the broader scope, right? So if we're not offering you $50,000 to open up your pharmacy, take a hike, see you later, someone else will, right? But what if I told you now that half of our group is actually owned by our pharmacies and we have an equity component? So it might not be tomorrow, but in five years, if we get acquired or if we have a cash injection, what if I give you a check for half a million dollars, right? It's it's That's where it's frustrating from a business development side of things because... They want everything now. Owners want everything now. I shouldn't say all owners, but most of them want something now. And it becomes difficult because, well, I can't show you immediate returns, obviously, because, you know, there's so many different factors into your business. You're just starting a new pharmacy, right? But maybe I can help you out where 
You know, instead of you taking three years to get the 70 scripts a day, well, maybe it only takes you one year or one and a half or whatever it may be. So if you're open to putting in the work and thinking about the long-term success, then okay, it's great to have a conversation. But this now, now, now kind of mentality that a lot of owners have, it's not going anywhere, but it's frustrating to deal with to say the least. What do you think is the driver behind that kind of immediate returns mentality that a lot of owners have? Like I'm thinking as a student, like, you know, having done six years, having to pay off student debt and those kinds of things. Like, do you think it's perhaps an artifact of the pressure that we're always under to perform immediately? And like, even when you're in school, you don't think four years down the line, like what's fourth year going to look like? Like you're, you know, drowning in exams and assignments. So like, you're always kind of thinking immediately, like, do you think there's a way for us to break that sense and that that thought process? I'll actually interject on behalf of Nevin. And I think to answer your question, Alexa, and then Nevin can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think it's almost like you want to get a rush to breaking even. And it's like, because you're going to be in the red for so long, or like three years or four years or whatever it is, as a pharmacist, you may, you may be making X amount of money regularly, but now as an owner, you've got to take that pay cut. You've got the overhead. You've got all this like stuff that's the capital that you are now responsible for. So now it's like, okay, what can I do to lessen the risk in the immediate so that I'm able to almost like swallow this better? And I think that's, that's where you have like this dissociation between the now and the future where it's like, I have a lot of risk on my shoulders at this point. I need someone to help me out. What can you do for me now? And if you can't help me out now, then like I got to look for someone else because I'm taking on a project too big and it and almost begs the question Then I don't think that person's really ready for ownership. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like you, you, you said it all perfectly right there. It's, and, and I definitely understand, right? And I tell owners, I say, I get it. You know, if, if a company is offering you $100,000 for a 10-year term, First of all, you should break it down. Okay, so it's $10,000 a year extra, essentially, you're getting, right? I understand your pharmacy costs half a million dollars to build. Well, that helps you out right there, right? So it is this burden. It is this expectation where I got to start making money, right? And truth of the matter is, it's going to take at least two years for most pharmacies to even break even, right? And if you're not willing to do that and stay on the path, then ownership might not be the best time for you, right? And you're going to find yourself doing things that you're going to ultimately regret when it comes to your business, Right. So that's where the education piece certainly comes into play. And if you identify that, okay, it's going to suck for two years, maybe. Right. But willing to work, willing to get my name out there, willing to market within the area. Okay. Then that's, that's what you got to do. Just stay calm and stay on the path. I remember again, just going back to my own experience um, of going into some pharmacies where the owners or the, or the part owners, they were interested in getting something different because they were having a bad experience with whatever group they were with or whatever the situation was. But because they had signed an agreement and they had accepted a lump sum up front, breaking that agreement would mean, not only would, would it be like, um, uh, what is it called? Right of first, right of first refusal? Right of first refusal. Right of first refusal would be involved. Like all this business stuff that they had realized that they signed on the contract was involved in all this stuff. So it like, again, got them into this big mess where they, they were willing and motivated for a change and something different and they weren't happy where they were, but they were almost being strong and strong armed into staying within the contract. If I could give one piece of advice to anyone listening to this podcast, this is what I'm going to tell you. Never, ever take upfront money from any group. Because what's going to happen is you're going to be so blinded by this $50,000 or whatever it is. And then, as you mentioned, you could hate these guys to death. But 
If you want to leave, you got to pay back all that money. And God forbid your pharmacy isn't successful in the first two years because now you don't have $30,000 to give back to these people or whatever the amount is, right? Never do it. Don't get blinded by it. The cost of borrowing money at the bank is much cheaper in the long run versus you having to deal with this headache for five, 10, seven years, whatever it is. It's the same if you're a staff pharmacist and you get a sign-on bonus. If you have to work for two years in a location that you absolutely hate, you're not going to like that $20,000 that you got. It's not going to be worth it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that reminds me of advice that I think we got from Mike Sullivan, his students, where he told us a very similar thing. It's just kind of like, don't get wrapped up in any kind of contract where you have a term limit where you need to do X amount of time with a certain group, like no matter how sweet the deal is, like, because again, two years might sound like fine, whatever, I'll toughen out two years. But when two years becomes 365 days times two, oh boy, <laughs> like that's a lot of mornings that you don't want to get out of bed. Well, and that's, that's, you know, when we actually started as a group, we did a, a market um, survey and basically we identified, okay, people don't like these long-term contracts, banner fees, they want transparency, trust. So that's why we don't have a right of first refusal. We don't have a long-term contract. We only have a 60-day exit clause, right? I can make the term a thousand years, but you give written notice, you're out in two months. And why can we do that? Because we don't give you any upfront money. So you don't have to pay anything back to me. Handshake, sorry, didn't work out. See you later, right? And you got to protect yourself. And it's like, I'd be the first to say that. If someone handed me a check for $100,000 said, sign here, Nevin, that's very tempting, right? <laughs> that's That's, especially as a young, you know, if you're, 28, 29, 30, whatever it is, that's a lot of money to be coming into, especially if you're starting a new business and it can help out. But you gotta, you gotta look at the bigger picture here and think in the long term, right? Do you plan on pumping this thing up and dumping it in two years? No, you're gonna wanna sustain your business for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, right? Can't get, you can't get blinded by this short-term, you know, what is it, short-term pain, long-term? No, that's not the right term. Anyways, you know what I mean. <laughs> but like, it, it's a principle of delayed gratification, essentially. Like, you grit your teeth for a little bit at the start, and you kind of take a greater burden early with the potential of greater rewards later. And like, there's tons of literature about that. So tough it out, and trust me, you'll be good. Because the second you start to see your business grow, but you took that upfront money, well, what's happening now is these guys aren't stupid. They're making their money back. It's a loan they're essentially giving you, right? But as your business grows, your payments aren't growing with it. They're not going to compensate you. They're saying, no, 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 you signed the deal for this. So I pray that you get up like 200 scripts a day because I'm making so much money on the back end now that that $100,000 I loaned you is peanuts compared to what I'm now making, right? Now, conversely, if you're a very underperforming pharmacy, well, then that's kind of good, right? Because you needed that <laughs> money. Sucks for the company that gave you that money, but you're okay, right? So that's the, you got to be careful. A lot of people gotta be careful. Is there any other is there any other advice that you would want to give to any new young entrepreneurs that are looking to open a pharmacy? Anyone listening to this that's a student and they're like, you know, as soon as I want to get out, bam, open a pharmacy. What is what is your advice? My advice is first of all, cut your teeth, right? Right out of your, you know, right out of school, you gotta cut your teeth. You gotta, you know, get the practical experience and you know, talk to people, right? Talk to other owners, see what their thoughts are, see what they've done. Gather ideas, right? I can't be the only one to tell you what to do with your pharmacy. You got to have, you know, come in with a vision. Come with a vision. Come with aspirations, right? What do you want? What do you want to focus on, right? Find your niche, and then we can layer in everything else. But once you have that kind of spark and that determination to open up a pharmacy, and you're motivated and you're willing to grind and roll up the sleeves and put in the work, 
then that's when you should explore opening up a pharmacy, right? Also, give Whole Health a call. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I think that's like a pretty good way to wrap it up. We're kind of going to uh, time now. Um, So I guess to summarize, we talked a lot, a lot. Are pharmacy, are pharmacists bad business people? <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like we're bad business people, luckily. We just need a little bit of education. So, you know, after that eight years of school, we actually didn't have enough, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, you guys, you guys aren't bad business people. Um, I think you just need to listen a little bit more to what other people need to say, or have to say, rather. And, and I think the really good point that you brought there was that uh, you're not a pharmacist. The hell, the, the, the CEO of OPA isn't a pharmacist, but, but people bring that as a point to not join OPA or not listen to authority, right? It's like, oh, this this person outside of pharmacy is trying to interject with their points. Like, what do they know? But it turns out... They actually know a lot more than you do. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> bringing perspectives from different industries and different experiences is, is exactly what we need from for pharmacy because we're such a stagnant profession, right? Like, we've only seen a decline in community pharmacy. Like, we need new perspectives. And I think it's a really good point that we bring up that uh, it's important to like be open, listen, not just to like your peers, but also to others that are outside potential. of our field. We've got potential. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's it, look. I think it's kind of unfortunate how they don't teach you this in school because they gotta identify that how many graduates go on to own their own pharmacy. Probably a lot of them, right? So the fact that you kind of have to now go into this blind or turn to a group who just does everything for you that doesn't help you out, right? You gotta work with someone that's gonna help educate you so that. We're showing you the tools. We're not going to do them for you, but we're giving you all the resources and information so that you can learn. If we do everything for you, that doesn't help you out in the long run, right? We want to make sure that we can do whatever we can so that we are like teaching you really about how to run your business. And then never take up front money. Never take up front money. <laughs> never do it. <laughs> Even if it's a million dollars? Different conversation. <laughs> the number of zeros will determine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Call Whole Health. We're always open. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Nevin, for yeah, your time. I think uh, it's been super helpful. And this actually worked out. It actually was uh, pretty good having it hybrid style, virtual and in person. Yeah, no, it actually worked out well. Great to meet you too, Alexa. Yeah, nice, nice e-meeting you. As always, visit offthescriptshow.com to see our show notes and more. And we'd really appreciate if you leave us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Off the Script is produced by Chris Tse, Faison Beg, Alexa Stankic, and Tom Fung. Quality control is completed by Stephen Guan. Mixing and editing is done by Chris Tse. Off the Script is a podcast focused on education and entertainment. We are not a replacement for real medical advice. Please see your local healthcare professional for your health needs. Thank you to Sean Singh for creating our introductory music. And thank you to Chillhop for letting us use their music for our intermission and ending. You can find more of their music at chillhop.com listen.